Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this tremendous privilege to gather together as family, Father, in the unity of the faith and the presence of you, your word, your spirit, and of course through your son. Father, thank you so much for sending your son, our Lord and Savior. Thank you for revealing to us truth that sets us free through him. Thank you for making it the very basis of our existence as believers, Father. Thank you for encouraging us through the study of the apostles and so many others in Scripture that lived in this reality that is the gospel. For it is the very power of God for salvation. Shall we not ever be ashamed of it, but proclaim it from the housetops, Father. Thank you so much for the time and the space and the opportunity to do such a thing. What a magnificent honor it is and a privilege it is to do that in time. Thank you also for that great hope that you've given to us as a result of possessing this salvation that is so great. We pray especially for those that couldn't make it this morning in the congregation. We love them. We want them to know that. But most of all, we want them to know and realize and continue to grow in your, your grace and your love. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for the work that you sent your son to do 2,000 years ago on a cross to cancel out that debt to save sinners. We ask for special blessings as well in this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is a continuation of Why Are the Apostles So Encouraging? And we remember that it was by grace that they were prepared. That's a fundamental truth, I think, that we all need to cling to as believers that by grace we are all prepared. And it's good for us to see individuals that are sort of our forerunners that went before us, that were prepared the same way, that had the same calling, maybe a different life altogether. But you could say that same thing about each one of us here this morning. We all have different lives. We've all been uniquely made. But we have that drumbeat, don't we, in our hearts. We have that beautiful thing called the gospel and that wonderful commission called the Great Commission, if you would. And that's just a wonderful thing to be able to cling to uh, in a world that just seems to be accelerating away from truth and godliness in a country that, unfortunately, as great as she is, um, for the most part, seems not to want our Lord anymore. I was just reflecting, uh, we got snowed out on Thursday evening, as you know, and the Spirit didn't give me any specific instructions uh, for you that you might do instead of attending class or listening online. So you had basically Thursday night given back to you. 
And a tremendously powerful verse came up on Tuesday's lesson that I'm convinced of was the Spirit's way of prodding you. I didn't know we were going to be canceled on Thursday, but he did. And so it was interesting because a, a certain verse came up on Tuesday that, in retrospect, seems to be his way of prodding you for Thursday. So he knew that we'd have an independent, let's call it a stay-at-home study. Go to Romans 14.22. Romans 14.22. And so I think about these kinds of things as your shepherd, um, how he's preparing you by grace. Romans 14.22, everyone, this is Sarah, I'm embarrassing her. (laughs) Romans 14.22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Ah, really? Romans 14.22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. That came up on Tuesday, before the snow day, on Thursday. uh, The faith in which you have, have as your own conviction before God. And you and I have taught this many times in the past. Do not live on borrowed convictions. Do not wait for the snazzy little slide. From pastor, you know, oh, I like that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jot that one down in my notes. I'm gonna make it the my uh, part of my signature on my emails. Happy is he who blah blah. blah. <laughs> Don't live on someone else's convictions. Find your own in Scripture. I'd hold up my Bible, but Sarah just took it. <laughs> I was gonna do this. Find your own. Just imagine it. So every time I do that, Sarah, you've got to hold it up. <laughs> the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. That's a hugely important point that the Spirit's been really driving home uh, for years now, frankly. So the question is simple. Did you take the time you were given on Thursday to seek your own convictions? He gave you back some time. Did you take the time, and maybe you're like, well, it wasn't Thursday because I, I can't get there, and I listen to Thursday messages on Friday mornings over my coffee, so blah. Well, did you take Friday mornings? <laughs> did you take the time to find your own convictions? Because that's where you find it. You find it in the Word. Or did you do like most lazy Christians do? Abuse God's grace. Like a snow day at school. Yay! You go running out in the snow. Just food for thought. I'm not trying to convict anybody this morning personally. Um, That's between you and the Lord. But it is wonderful to think about those things because he knew that we weren't going to have service on Thursday. But that verse came out on Tuesday. Planting seeds, I guess, right? So I'd like to begin this morning, though, officially with, um, well, by reminiscing about a man most of you will know. You remember him? Evil Knievel? If you were a young boy, you had a little motorcycle with a figurine on it. You know, total idolatry. With the cape. 
And you're like, evil canoodle, yeah. Right, and you crash him, because that's what he did. You know, you didn't wash him. You, you only watched him because he was unsuccessful. You didn't wash him because he, was, he, he made the jumps. He was using a Harley Davidson to jump. You know what I'm saying? You might as well be riding a brick. They just don't jump. They're wonderful cruisers, but you don't jump with a Harley. But he did, so you knew he was going to crash. So he broke 35 bones, his skull, nose, teeth, jaw, left, right, clavicles, sternum, back five times, both arms, all ribs, both wrists, pelvis three times, the coccyx, whatever that is, the femur five times, right knee, right shin, both ankles, and toes, plural. And he had a hip replacement. Okay. Am I listing Mr. Knievel's injuries to somehow idolize him? Not at all. I think the man was lucky to live until he was 69 years old. Imagine that. That's incredible. I think he died in 07. But now, as much as some of us did idolize this man in our younger days, the truth is that idolatry in any form is wrong. On Tuesday, Scott kept bringing up jumping the Grand Canyon. And all I could think about was Evil Knievel jumping things on his Harley Davidson. And he crashed horrifically, I think just about every time. I'm not kidding. Just about every time he crashed. And it was like, yeah, and everybody's like, oh. and it's like, nobody's like, yeah, I hope he makes it. Everybody's like, yeah, I wonder what it's going to look like when he bounces off the wall. It was horrible people, aren't we? So he had a broken body. But the point was simple, and I think this is what I'm trying to say, in, you know, in jest, is from Tuesday evening, futility. If you don't have the correct apparatus to, quote, make the leap, and you've refused the omnipotent God's help, you will surely crash and injure yourself. Trying to save oneself results in permanent, eternal injury, a.k.a. spiritual death and hell. Again, that's futility. If you don't have the correct apparatus to make the leap and you refuse the omnipotent God's help, you will surely crash and injure yourself. Trying to save oneself results in permanent eternal injury, a.k.a. spiritual death and hell. Believe it or not, this opening scene with Evil Knievel echoes of our recent lessons. Just think about what the Spirit's been saying what the import of bearing the gospel and bringing it to a, a world that thinks nowadays it can save itself, frankly, that it can manifest its own God and that God is inside of me and God is who I think He is. God is who I feel He is. You have your God with Jesus, I'll have mine. And it's all a lie. And they're all trying to jump the chasm and they're all just crashing. So let's get started this way, try to tie it back to our lessons proper, relative to Jesus' call. Why didn't Jesus choose the Pharisees, you know, the ones that thought they could make the leap on their own? Why didn't he choose the ones who were trying to jump on their own, thought they were self-righteous enough to save themselves through the religion of the law? Why didn't he choose the Pharisees? Why the apostles? Why did he choose the apostles? The answer is simple. The Pharisees thought they could save themselves. They thought they could save themselves, whereas the apostles looked to Jesus to save them. 
Go to Matthew 16.15. Matthew 16.15. It's a good question to ask yourselves, and that's how we're finding our encouragement. Asking the right questions. Why didn't he choose the Pharisees? Did he just have a personality conflict because they were arrogant? No, the bigger problem was that they thought they were saving themselves. They thought they could save themselves. And the apostles thought that Jesus could save them. The apostles knew that Jesus was the Savior. Matthew 16, 15, and if you have if you spent any time in this world, you know that both of those people exist even today. There's some people out there, seems the predominant force in our local neighborhoods, that think they can save themselves. Whether they're a member of the, the local large denomination or not is not the issue. The point is that they think that they can save themselves or they can somehow be saved in the absence of the Savior. So there's a bunch of variations, but that's exactly what's going on here and even today. Look at Matthew 16, 15. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You see Jesus or uh, Peter's conviction there. That's why he followed Jesus. That's why he looked to Jesus as his Savior. He said, you are the Christ. Christ means Messiah. The one that came to save. The Son of the living God. The Deliverer. The Redeemer. And the list goes on and on. The King of Kings. You are that person to me. And you have to ask yourselves... Is that the conversation you had? You had some kind of conversation like that when you were saved. Again, the point on the board, why didn't Jesus choose the Pharisees? Why the apostles? The answer is simple. The Pharisees thought they could save themselves, whereas the apostles looked to Jesus to save them. This was the emphasis for most of Tuesday night's lesson. We began with, I was like, hey, Scott, you going to get to the actual review or what? <laughs> His evangelist side just went crazy for about 45 minutes. He texts me after. He's like, man, the spirit was powerful tonight. <laughs> then I'm like, oh, I'll see. I go and he's like, Whoa, he's evangelizing. Repent! It's lovely, though. It's good to see. I mean, that's his gift, right? You know, just reel it in a little bit. <laughs> uh, so that was the emphasis of most of Tuesday night's lesson. Uh, we began with a nice reminder regarding how repentance is one side of the conversion coin, where faith in Christ is the other side, of course. They're one coin. Repent and have faith. Repent, faith. Repent, faith. Same coin. The Spirit brought up a wonderful big-picture principle on how repentance must lead faith in Christ, up here on the board. Repentance precedes faith in Christ, why did John the Baptist arrive with an entire ministry of repentance before Jesus did with the good news regarding himself? The answer? Because the hearts, the parable soil, if you would, because the hearts of the Jews had to be conditioned to receive the Messiah slash Savior. It was a favor. It was grace. That's what, fa that's what grace means, charis. It means favor in the sight of God. It was grace from God to send the forerunner, John the Baptist, to sort of till the soil, this, this, his message of repentance. He proceeded, we call him the forerunner of Jesus Christ, right? Why did he do that? Because he had to do that with the Jews. He did it for the Jews' sake. Because Jesus Christ, their Messiah, was coming shortly to them. 
and was about to reveal himself to them. And so by grace, God was preparing that soil, conditioning it. And this is essentially, if you are following along, this is essentially the same thing that must happen with everyone. Somewhere along the line, in, in your own conversion process, let's call it, you were conditioned the right way. Your soil was ready. You had what the parable would call good soil. Not, not shallow, not rocky, not choked out. Good soil that bears good fruit. You had been conditioned somehow. Some people, because of their own arrogance, it takes a long time. You know, it'd be like buying a lot of land going, geez, I wonder how this one's going to be. And you go out there with the, you know, the rototiller or the backhoe or whatever, and there's a ton of rocks. And it takes a long time to get the rocks out so you could actually plant and have a fertile crop. Some you might go and it might be weeded to the high heavens, right? And, and you've got to get the weeds out. And some you might show up and there's hardly mu- that much work. It's just almost ready as it is. People, that person, in other words, is, doesn't require the same amount of preconditioning, let's call it that way. So this is essentially the same thing that must happen with everyone. In fact, repentance is so important that John the Baptist and Jesus preached it from the very outset of their ministries. Go to Matthew 3.2, where we see John the Baptist. Matthew 3.2. Repentance is so important that both of these men preached it from the very outset of their ministries. Matthew 3.2. John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent. Any questions? There shouldn't be. How about Matthew 4.17, where Jesus is in view? Matthew 4.17. At the very outset of his public ministry, Jesus said what? Verse 17, From that time, Jesus began to preach and say what? Repent. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Up here on the board, John the Baptist's ministry of repentance, thinking of these two people in unison, the arrogant hearts of men need to be readied before they will turn to the Lord. If one doesn't admit their sinfulness and repent, they will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, thinking they have no real need. What do you need a Savior for if you don't, (laughs) if you have no reason to repent? If there's nothing to repent from because you're good enough, what do you think you'll ever, when would you ever in that instance be led to the need, the heartfelt need for a Savior? You wouldn't. The best you're going to become is a person looking for a freebie, a ticket to heaven, something they can sort of gather unto themselves which is the game a lot of people play, even in churches. Even in churches. If I wanted to blow the walls off this place, I'd, have, I'd give Brian a, a bigger band, probably hire some people. No offense, lovely ladies. Wonderful this morning. I loved it. It was pure. It was earnest from the heart. But if I wanted to, I'd make this stage higher over there, get more band, more lights, right? Get Brian a nice medallion. You know, say, listen, Brian, you got to wear shirts, unbutton them to here, you know what I'm saying? Toughed out your 
You know what I mean? And do the whole rock band thing. I'll teach for, you know, 10 minutes. Let's do some more music. And then I'll be like running around the stage for 15 minutes, screaming something. We'll do some more music and everybody will be like, oh. But I won't ever say repent. Because, oh, that would put, man, that's such a downer. Why is that guy, you know, I was on fire and then he said, repent. Oh, here we go again. I got to, what do you mean? I got to, what do you mean? I got to, I got to, well, I got to denounce my, the self-life? No way. No way. Just keep adding into my little bucket. Just give me stuff. I want to come to church and you, you know, you make me feel good so I can go back to my ridiculous life, my anti-Christ life. And um, keep on living that way. Keep living in sin, as the Bible says. But that's not truth, and that's not honesty, and that's not integrity to truth. For whatever reason, and maybe it's because some of you are really stubborn on accepting what the Bible has to say on the topic, for whatever reason, the Spirit wants us to ponder repentance from a multitude of ways. Go to Matthew 3, 7, back a little bit. Matthew 3, 7. <clears throat> but when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. There was an actual call there. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Up here on the board again, the arrogant hearts of men need to be readied before they will turn to the Lord. If one doesn't admit their sinfulness and repent, they will reject the gospel of Jesus Christ, thinking they have no real need. Therefore, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, you see, this is the problem. He knew their hearts. He knew what was going on. We have Abraham for our father. In other words, we have a physical lineage. And John was like, that's garbage. Do not play that little game. This little, oh, I'm a member of this tribe, or I'm a member of this church, or I'm a member of this family. I think, is it not fair to say, I think some kids even think, well, my parents and grandparents, they were so devout. I'm good. No, for real. Oh, my parents, it's like, you need to cut the umbilical cord, first of all, you're 30. Cut it. Let it go, right? Let it go. You're not under their, you know, no, you're not under your parents anymore. They don't save you. You don't get saved because they're saved. But it's almost like people have that mindset that as long as I'm under, my parents were so wonderful so great that somehow it's going to bleed into my life, that it's going to save me because my parents are so religious or whatever. It don't work like that. But that's what the Pharisees were thinking. Well, Abraham's our father, and he's the father of the Jews. Yeah, but that's just a bloodline. So he said, we have, you know, he said, do not suppose that, verse 9, do not suppose that you can say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that from these stones God is able to raise up children to Abraham. You don't even understand what the truth is about Abraham. Up here on the board. 
do not suppose this reeks of contemporary plague, of the contemporary plague in the churches where people are convinced that they are saved just because they are, quote, official members of a church or a group or a lineage, etc., etc. It's the same mentality that still exists. Oh, well, I'm a member of this church or I'm, you know, my whole family's really religious, so you just kind of stand next to them. What do, you, what do you think? When, when everybody, you know, we get raptured out of here, everybody dies, you're going to stand next to your parents? And, and St. Peter's going to be so busy, he's just going to, you know, this whole game they play. St. Peter's going to be like, oh, yeah, all right, just go in. It's like the, the bouncer, just go in. Right? The concert's starting. Right? <laughs> no, you're like, I'm with them. No, it don't work that way. You know, like when I've taught you the, the rod, when you go through the sheepfold, through the gate, Every sheep is counted. The shepherd goes, counts all his sheep. Oh, wait a minute. Not you. But I'm with them. Sorry. But I'm both part of their church. Sorry. You're not accounted among my own sheep. So do not suppose and tell your parents and your friends, and your relatives, and your associates, do not suppose, my friend. Do not suppose. As the Spirit's been reminding us of lately, in case you're timid about such a conversation, you know, Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation. Never. Why? Because He loved them. Do you think that you love anybody in this world more than Jesus loved anyone in this world? Couldn't even be possible. And yet he never had a problem. Never had a problem squaring off with someone, challenging someone's salvation. Never. Are you to say that you love your child more than Jesus loves your child? But if Jesus was standing right next to you, he'd be saying, you're obviously not doing your job. Let me step in for you. You, my friend, are not passing through this gate. We need to have a separate conversation. Because you see, on this side of the gate, you don't get to bring the self-life in. Hmm. So Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation. Obviously, neither did John the Baptist, neither did, neither did Paul, neither did the apostle, any of the apostles. Go for it. So we have to get our perspective correct. And that in itself is encouraging as well because we do see the apostles doing the same thing. I have to do what's right by God. You can whip me, you can throw me around, you can martyr me. But I've got to do what's right. And that usually means you're going to lose friends. You're going to lose relationships. Not because of anything you are doing, but because of what you stand for. And you have to be okay with that. So Jesus never had a problem challenging a person's salvation, and neither did his forerunner, John the Baptist, as we can see here. Look at verse 10. This is pretty graphic. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Uh-oh. <laughs> right? That's pretty graphic. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit, this back, that goes all the way back to the soils if we want to be that diligent 
Therefore, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I am not fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor. And he will gather his wheat into the barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And that is an individual thing, my friends. If you're chaff, you don't sneak into the wheat. Think of just thinking about the wheat and the tares, the parable of the wheat and the tares, the one that follows right after the parable of the soils. And the apostles are like, well, should we, or in the story, you know, should we get rid of the tares? I mean, they seem to be messing up our crop. And he said, no, let them grow up together. So that means that there are believers and unbelievers that grow up together, even in the churches, and they look a lot alike. But it's not our job to call them out. God will do that at the end. Jesus will do this work. will judge. Nope. You're not mine. You're mine. You're not mine. You're wheat. You're tares. You're wheat. You're chaff. Pick your, pick your parable. For the sake of perspective, I was thinking about this, and I'm only doing this. Do not make this a doctrine, what I'm about to present. I'm just trying to spark up critical thinking in your own souls. Because I know everyone here on Thursday evening was just, just grinding out critical thinking. Thursday evening. You were like, um, there was no class. I'm just grabbing my Bible if it was here, Sarah. I grab my Bible and I'm going to do some critical thinking. Because I know that's what everybody here did. I can just tell by looking at you. How about those songs? How about glory, glory? <laughs> so for the, fa- for the sake of perspective, here's a few things that I thought about as I was listening to Tuesday's message. Again, do not make this. I'm sorry, I'm a computer engineer by trade, so zeros and ones make sense to me, so whatever. A zero means not there, one means there, okay? The conversion coin. We know one side is repentance, the other side is faith in Christ. Well, what if you have one of one and one of the other and both or neither? What about that? So I did a little critical thinking, and I'm just sort of teasing it out of all of you. Things and food for thought. What if you have no repentance and no faith in Christ? What's the Bible say? That's a hardened heart. That's someone who just says, I reject everything. Zero, zero. Hardened heart. John 12, 39 to 40. How about a person who does not repent, but has what we might call pseudo-faith in Christ? That might be the young ruler, what the young ruler was all about. I don't really want to leave the old life, because I kind of like it, but I'd like whatever you have. I'd like, it added, I'd like it added unto me. That's the rich young ruler guy. And that's in Scripture, Matthew 19, 16 to 22, 16, 24. How about the person who repents, but they turn to the wrong Savior? They're like, I am wicked, good. But I don't like this Jesus guy. 
I like this other guy, the guy with the, you know, you rub his belly. I like that guy. That's the wrong Savior, 2 Corinthians 11.4. It's amazing that all these are in Scripture, aren't they? And then, of course, one, one. All ones. Repent, faith in Christ. That's a saved person. I'm talking in the truest sense. Mark 1, 15, Romans 10, 8 to 10. So let's walk through this. How about the zero, zero case, the hardened heart? Go to John 12, 39. John 12, 39. And I know some of you are like, are we really on repentance and faith? Yes, we are. Why? I don't know. I don't know. You guys are slow. I thought we finished this like last year. I was like, yeah, we put it to bed. Here we are again. Who's dragging? Raise your hand. Who is it? How many times? <laughs> John 12, 39. For this reason they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, verse 40, He has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart, so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. Oh. So they won't be converted with their zero zeros. Yeah, that's the hardened heart. I wrote a blog on compassion. Yeah, that's right. On Saturday. And I even gave you something on this. And if you read it, you know exactly what I'm talking about. The person who has a hardened heart. The next possibility in our little exercise is the person without repentance, but with what we might best call a pseudo-faith in Jesus, and I use the term pseudo because while believing that he has something good to give them, they never, they have never counted the cost. And as we've studied in the past, counting the cost implies the fundamental fact that Jesus died for our sins. There was a real cost. The very necessity of the sacrifice in light of man's inherent sin that's what counting the cost means. There's a sin issue. And Jesus died to solve the problem. It required death of the spotless and blameless Lamb of God. Do you understand that? That means if He had to do that for you, you, my friend, have a real problem. And if you've never thought that way, then you haven't counted the cost. What was the cost of salvation? It was everything. But you see, most people don't want to think about that. They, if they don't think they have a problem, then what do they care about what Jesus paid? If they don't think they have a problem, what about counting the cost in their own life, giving up the self-life? What about that part of counting the cost? You see, counting the cost is a whole idea. It's a whole concept. There was a real chasm, and it needed to be reconciled. It had to be bridged, let's say. And there's real cost involved. But the person who says, I don't repent, I have no desire to repent, I don't have any, I, I don't want it, just give me the goodie bag, like the rich young ruler. You see, that's a pseudo-faith. Because they, they say, yeah, Jesus is real. He's given me my ticket to heaven. But I never counted the cost. I never actually understood the sin issue in the first place. Grandma just told me if I believe in this Jesus guy, and she gave me a few facts from the Bible, that I, go to, I get a ticket to heaven. Okay, so that's why I call that sort of pseudo. These individuals haven't counted the cost. This pseudo-believer is the type of person who comes to Jesus without any regard for their own sinfulness, looking for a handout. 
They are users looking for the keys to heaven. Go to Matthew 16, 24. Matthew 16, 24. And I'll tell you what, this is the one that scares me in today's churches. This is the one that scares me, and I believe that's one of the key reasons why we were on the gospel, salvation, and sanctification for so long. Because there's a lot of churches, especially, I can only speak to this country, there's a lot of churches in this country that do not teach repentance. They don't even touch it. They just say, believe these facts right here and you're good. There's no reconciling anything in their soul. There's no conditioning of the soil. There's not even, they've perverted the parables to suit their little perverted gospel. And everything's amok. And we wonder why these same people bear no good fruit except fake fruit once in a while. We wonder why they have no passion for saving people. All they care about is themselves. We wonder about these things. I do. Look at Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The one who wants to keep their white knuckles around the self-life loses the life that matters. But the one who lets that go gains everything. But you've got to have that conversation with God. Matthew 16, 26, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? That's the account of the rich young ruler who Jesus, guess what, sent away. Sent him away. This third category now, which is repent. Someone has repentance but no faith in Christ. That's the wrong Savior. This third category is interesting too because it represents folks who understand their sinfulness, repent, but turn to another Jesus. Go to 2 Corinthians 11, 4. 2 Corinthians 11, 4. Again, I'm just trying to spark some critical thinking in your soul. 2 Corinthians 11, 4. A person who repents, they say, yeah, you know what? I'm wretched. I'm that person. I'm, whew, I need a Savior. And they go to the wrong Savior. Because Satan has a lot of counterfeit Saviors out there. Some people go to the arms of another human being. And that human being is wearing a a cape. I'll save you! Right? And it's some moron (laughs) who might not even be saved themselves. Anyways, 2 Corinthians 11.4 For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted. You bear this beautifully. Do we do that? I don't know. And then finally, of course, is true repentance coupled with true faith in the person of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. Go to, that's the 1-1 one, one situation. Go to Mark one fifteen. Mark one fifteen. And there was no mistake. I mean, it, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. I mean, the gospel bears his name. After all, and what did he have to say? Oh, we just saw what he said at the start of his ministry. Repent, 
The kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's what he said. What about Mark 1.15? And Jesus was saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. In other words, swallow the whole coin. Then Romans 10.8, go there. Romans 10.8. Romans 10.8. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we are preaching, that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. Okay? Repent, faith in Christ, same coin, one whole coin. If you're going to be saved, you have to swallow the whole thing. Now, please, again, don't go making the slide on the board some kind of staple in your daily spiritual diet or some doctrine. It's really just to get you thinking about the process of conversion and that repentance, as both John the Baptist and Jesus stated very clearly, is an integral, necessary part of conversion. So, before we move on to our mainstream course of study with the apostles, let's recall the instigating question on the table. Remember this? It was, why didn't Jesus choose the Pharisees? Why the apostles? The answer is simple. The Pharisees thought they could save themselves, whereas the apostles looked to Jesus to save them. That was the instigate. That's what got us going again on some old news, if you would, from last year on repentance and faith in Christ, repentance and faith in Christ. And I just got you thinking about, well, what if someone has this and not that? Or neither? It's food for thought. And those are nice little games you can play with yourself on a Thursday that you've got snowed in. I wonder about that. What does the Bible say about that thing? If you go to the website, I even give you study. Websites that specialize on topical studies. Hey, what about Paul? All you have to do is type in Paul. Look at all these passages that pop up. All you got to do is type up, I don't love, freedom, friendship, relationships, there's no shortage of, of people who have done good work to help you out. There really isn't. But, you know, that's work. So, Back to the question on the board. Why didn't he choose the Pharisees? Why the apostles? The answer is simple. They thought they could save themselves. The apostles went to Jesus. The apostles were open to Jesus saving them. Religious folks never really are. This is why the Spirit spends so much time with us regarding grace also. It's because so many people don't truly understand what God's grace is. And I'm speaking of so-called Christians, too. A lot of people like that word. But there's a lot of Christians that I believe are literally the contemporary manifestation of the rich young ruler. All they're looking for is more stuff. Do you understand? There's no counting. There's no repentance. There's no anything. 
It's just, you mean I can get more free stuff? Yep. I like grace. Yeah, but you're not, you're coming at grace wrong. You're coming at grace wrong. You're coming at it like the rich young ruler. So, I believe it's fair to say that this is just about the greatest tragedy we see in this lifetime, less maybe actual salvation issues, which is a function of grace itself. So people not understanding grace is just about the biggest tragedy of all. You see, this is why the apostles are truly encouraging to us. It's because of grace. And by grace they were prepared. That's our category right now. They're encouraging because of grace. Specifically that they received it. And they learned how to keep on receiving it more and more. That's what's so encouraging about them. And the only person who receives grace, God gives grace to who? There it is. There's the age-old question. Humility versus arrogance. The key to the spiritual life is humility. That is it, my friends. That is it. If you think you can save yourself, through yourself, for yourself, by yourself, you have a huge problem. A massive, massive problem. Because you don't understand grace. Everything about their calling, the apostles, their training, and their commissioning is grounded and rooted in God's grace. Hence our current topic of study, by grace he prepared them. As we'll continue to see in Scripture, even by grace, following Jesus isn't always the most elegant scenes, given our flaws. In fact, it reminds me of this. Don't ask me why I thought of this, but... Just pretend you're one of those cans. All right, so you're tied to the bumper. That's Jesus. Jesus driving. You're married, but you're outside. You're betrothed, so you're not in it, let's say. Not a bad analogy. You're not in there yet, because that would be like in heaven. So you're dragging behind. But you are a believer, so you're going where he goes, right? But what do these cans do? They're still going in the right direction, but they're all over the place. They're banging into each other. They're making a racket. They're throwing sparks. You see? We're betrothed to him. We're tied to his bumper. And he's gone. But we are a mess back there. But guess what? Where we're going. This is one of the themes of our lessons for over a year now. If we're not tied to Jesus, if we're not following him, we can make a lot of noise. If we're not following him, we're not of him. We're not in him. That's the whole point. Those, those strings never break. They never break. Maybe a sanctification might be a shortening of the strings. You see? Because the ones with the really long strings, right, what are they doing? They're just everywhere, <laughs> banging off trees and tripping people up on the sidewalks. And, you know, so maybe mature, you know, as you're sanctified, you get more, your string gets shorter, but you're still clanging around back there. It's probably about as far as I can take the analogy. But the point is, we follow him. 
But we're not perfect. We make a lot of noise. But if you don't fall, if you're not tethered to him, you're not in him. You might run behind him for a little while and make some noise and pretend you're there, but that's by human will. You will fatigue, and the car's going to drive away, and you're going to be stuck on the sidewalk again. That's the reprobate. That's the that's Hebrew 6 person. That's the apostate, the one who ran behind the car for a little while. That's the one with the, the shallow soil, right, who was in the mix a little bit for a little while, but then wasn't tied to him. So they fatigued because it was by human strength that they were standing in that little religious circle. While the Bible tells us that a saved person will persevere in following Jesus, just like he said they will, Jesus said in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The Bible also says that we won't walk a perfectly straight line when doing so. Hence this car analogy, or this can analogy. In keeping with the can analogy, consider this up here on the board. If you look in the mirror and can literally, wholeheartedly say, I have no option but to follow Jesus, then you're saved. I'm not saying you're saved. That's a discussion you have to have. Honestly, openly, honest, uh, wholeheartedly. With the Lord, with the Spirit. I have no option but to follow Jesus. If that is literally your heart, you've been changed. You may make noise, you may be clanging around back there, but at the end of the day, you don't have an option, and you look in the mirror and say, I don't have an option. I am His. He's my husband. Where my husband goes, I go. I may be witching around over there. <laughs> Ladies, you saying, you know what you do to your hubbies? Should have got directions 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Tammy's like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, right? You might be that nagging wife but you're still in the car. You're still in the car. You're going. You're going where your husband goes. If that's not you, what do you want me to tell you? What do you to tell you? You're not married to him. He's not your husband. One last key principle from Tuesday's message. Robbing purpose. Satan hijacks the Christian purpose getting folks to focus on laboring for crowns rather than simply spreading the gospel. Why? Because I want more stuff. Isn't that in keeping with that mentality? I want more stuff for me. I want to be a super believer. Right? I want to be a super believer. I want to get ten crowns. I want to be like Tom Brady. I have one for every finger. Right? Yeah. Because it's all about me. Because I'm an idolater. And Satan loves it. Satan's like, yeah, make, even make this so-called Christianity about you. Make it about getting crowns. Make it about getting pats on the back. Make it about, you know, the Bible says you'll get crowns if you, you know, blah, blah, blah. What? And what is a, a true person who gets those crowns, what are they going to do? Cast them at the feet of the Lord. Say, I'm not worthy of these things. Are you serious? 
Give me a crown? But Satan hijacks the Christian purpose even, getting folks to focus on laboring for crowns rather than simply spreading the gospel. Even when Paul was chastising the churches, it was because whatever they were doing was detracting from their ultimate purpose of spreading the gospel. You see, once you have this clarity that the Spirit's trying to impart on all of you for a while now, once you have this clarity, you literally become like Paul was. Go to 1 Corinthians 2.1. 1 Corinthians 2.1. And Satan does not want you to be like Paul. That is literally the last thing he wants you to be. Like Paul. Whose entire life, whose entire mentality was focused and rooted and grounded in the gospel. Look at 1 Corinthians 2.1. And when he came to you, brethren, I, or when I came to you, brethren, Paul speaking, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God, for I determined nothing among you except Jesus Christ in him crucified. That was Paul. That was him. That's who he was. That's all I want to know. I just want to know. I just want to know Christ and him crucified. That's all I want to know. That's all I want to see. I just want to go out in the field, his field, and I just want to see good fruit. I don't want to see counterfeit fruit. I don't want to see fakers. I don't want to see any of this. I want to see real fruit. Because that brings glory to God. That's what I want to see. But Satan doesn't want you to know that. Satan doesn't want you to live with that purpose. Do you understand? He doesn't want that to be your purpose in life. He doesn't want that to be the centerpiece of your life. He doesn't want the gospel to be the centerpiece, as I say. He doesn't want you living in the gospel reality. He doesn't want you doing that thing. Because that makes you very dangerous to the God of this world. Very dangerous, very disruptive to the God of this world. Paul wasn't the first apostle to share this sentiment with others. Go to uh, Acts 5.27. Acts 5.27 this sentiment, this, this central theme, this central purpose in the lives of believers was not novel even. We're going backwards here. It's not even novel. Acts 5.27 When they, officers at the behest of the religious council, when they had brought them, the apostles, they stood them before the council. The high priest questioned them, saying, We gave you strict orders not to continue teaching in this name. And yet, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Isn't that kind of funny? That they would... It's so arrogant. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had put to death by hanging him on a cross. He is the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Does that sound familiar up here on the board? John 8, 24. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins. This is Jesus. For unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. What they do, they strung him up on a cross instead. Acts 5, 32. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey Him. What you should see there 
in both passages is grace. Is grace. By grace, he prepared them. Do you see the boldness? All Paul wanted to talk about was Jesus Christ, him and him crucified. What did you see there? I don't, get, I don't care what you people say. Now, you have to understand the temperature and the, um, the context of what the apostles... The apostles were going before the leaders. This wasn't just some religious council in a church. These people govern their society. Do you understand? This was, you know, like a, 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 what we would call a theocracy where government and religion are this way. So this was a big deal. And they had this sort of, this courage. Why? Because of grace. Because they understood God's grace. They understood the gospel. They understood that living for the gospel was the very meaning of life for them as believers. Why would they ever stop that thing? So that's our encouragement. By grace, they were prepared. Jesus taught his disciples to have their own convictions, as I started with this morning. Have their own convictions. He then gave them his spirit to teach, encourage, and empower this. We all have the word of and the spirit of Christ by grace. By grace, you're prepared. I mean, how are you going to be bold? How are you going to be confident? How are you going to have your own convictions unless you read your Bibles, unless you're filled with the Spirit, unless you listen, unless you're humble, unless you receive grace? How's that going to happen? So one of the most encouraging things about the apostles is that they received grace and they learned how to receive it more and more. To whom he who has, he shall be given more. And so that's our encouragement. It wasn't that, that, that they were special or exceptional men. No, they, they were humble. They weren't perfect. They were like cans, right? They weren't perfect. But they were humble. You're not perfect. Chris is like, this is news. I'm just kidding. Chris is a humble guy. You're not perfect. So, right? I mean, we have to learn. If we're not perfect, that means we have real needs. And real needs are met by grace. Satan's going to go, I have the answer. I have the answer. It's usually in the form of the opposite sex, but we'll go there some other day. I have the, I have the, oh yeah, totally. I have a counterfeit for you. I have a counterfeit for you. I'll save you. I'll save you. No, you have to be humble towards God's grace. You have to be humble towards God's grace. Because that's how you're prepared. And you'd have to have your own convictions on that thing. So this is a perfect segue back to our mainstream studies up here on the board. By grace, they were prepared. Not only did their natural abilities have nothing to do with Jesus choosing them, but they had nothing to do with their preparation for ministry. In fact, their natural abilities handicapped them. The apostles' human abilities often proved to be inabilities spiritually. Now, we've been given the following paradigm as a framework. I'm trying to tie some of this back to where we've been. Sending the apostles out, big picture. Why the apostles so encouraging? Well, he chose them. He called them. We've already covered that. But he also trained them up. 
academically, OJT, on-the-job training, and then he sends them out. As a refresher from last week's lessons, then, up here on the board, we need to understand when and how the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission they were eventually given. It wasn't enough that Jesus simply called 12, quote, unexceptional men. He made a point of training them up before sending them out. If you know anything about the men, you know anything about yourself, you know that there's encouragement there. There's absolutely no reason for any of us to think that he doesn't prepare us the same way. Since sheep in the body of Christ, the church, don't have Jesus to teach them, he has chosen and anointed under-shepherds to guide his sheep. Go to Ephesians 4.11. Ephesians 4.11. He has chosen them and anointed them. I know that sounds like a fancy word, but you know what? It's actually true. Yours truly is an anointed man of God. Whether you like it or not, whether you think I'm trying to be idolatrous or not, is not the issue. The fact remains, he chose me and he anointed me as an under-shepherd. It's a wonderful, incredible privilege. Why? Look what he left them to do. Ephesians 4.11 And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. What do you think these people do? What do you think I do? All I do is just keep fighting, fighting and fighting and fighting. Then I hear this, I hear this from the world. I see this in the world. I see this or that in you. And he says, you got to teach on it because now your sheep are drifting away. They're taking the counterfeits. They're buying the lie. They're doing this thing. They're doing that thing. So all a shepherd does is fight and fight and fight and fight and fight. Beat the wolves off and pull you out of the thicket and say, what is wrong with you? Right? I thought there was some grass over there. Right? It's like, what is wrong with you? Put your glasses on. Right? This handsome man was holding some grass. Yeah, no kidding. That was not even grass. Dude doesn't care anything about Jesus Christ. Look at him or her, right? Whoever it is, they don't care. What do you think they're doing? So what do you think I'm doing then as a shepherd? I'm fighting and fighting and fighting and fighting. There is no way, unless this gift is supernaturally empowered by God himself, there is no way I'd still be standing here. I would have cast all of you off with some choice words a long time ago. What in that is wrong with you? Seriously. I got enough problems. I have to say it to myself. Seriously. These things are supernaturally wrought for your benefit. But look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in what? Love. Just like I just did in the last minute. In love. In love. Some of you are so ridiculously arrogant, you're like, oh, here he goes talking about himself. You're the one I have choice words for right now. Jerk. No idea how much I love you guys. You have no idea. And some of you have the audacity to attack me. You're disgusting. 
and yet by love I continue to push on. Think of Jesus, and I look in the mirror and go, oh me, oh my. Look at Jesus! They hung him on a cross, and all he did was want to love them. Just think about that the next time you want to be a jerk. Just think about that the next time Satan's got the the guy or the girl with the fake grass. Just think about it. What do you think this is all about? This is a game? This is Sunday morning games. Yay! No, this is real. This is somber. This is... This is everything. This is everything. Not optional. It's everything. So, anyways, but speaking the truth in love, we ought to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Again, this passage amplifies the point on the board. We need to understand when and how the apostles' natural abilities were insufficient for the commission they were eventually given. It wasn't enough that Jesus simply called 12 unexceptional men. He made a point of training them up and then sending them out. As we noted last Sunday, the remainder of this beautiful passage amplifies so much of what we've learned about perseverance over the past year even. Let's review that quickly. I'll do this very quickly with you. Look at verse 17. <clears throat> so this I say, and I probably wouldn't have to redo this if Scott didn't get all carried away on Tuesday, but whatever. <laughs> verse 17. So this I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you, and he's talking about the Ephesian believers now, walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. Remember the zero, zero case in our little repent faith table? Zero, zero right there, the hardness of their heart. Verse 19, and they, having become callous, have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But you, but you, and this is, a lot of people look at the Ephesian letter as as much of a love letter as anything. But you, the Ephesian believers, did not learn Christ in this way. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. Up here on the board, lay aside. I gave you this, the aorist tense. So one time, once and for all, middle voice subject does not, does and receives the action, indicative mood, dogmatic fact. You lay aside. It means to lay us off or aside, renounce, stow away. In context, refers to what a true believer does. You lay aside. At salvation, it was laid aside. That's what you did. That's what happened. You were involved in it, but it happened. From that point on, done. Doesn't mean you're not clanging around back there. But you laid aside the old self. Isn't that what Jesus said? You've got to lay aside the old self. You've got to deny self to follow me. You did it. He's talking to believers. You did it. I affirm it with the Lord even. You did it. And this is it. It's a matter of fact, dogmatic statement of fact. It happened here, and it's forevermore true. 
That's why he says, I affirm together with the Lord that these Ephesians are not like the Gentile unbelievers. And then he goes on to describe them as those who lay aside the old self. And again, Aris, uh, tense, in the middle mood, indicative mood. We'll skip right over that because I'm going quickly. Look at verse 17 again. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you, the Ephesian believers, Walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. And then jump to verse 20. He says, but you, but you, one long sentence through verse 24, by the way. Look at verse 22. He says, but you, and then there's a big long sentence. Verse 22, he says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and then what? Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. I hope you see a transaction, in other words, one that's undoable. At salvation, the old's gone, the new's on. From there on, it's, that's what it is. And you can't, you're now tethered to the bumper. You may make some noise, but you're going with him. What we have here is one complete thought from Paul that describes the flip side of you lay aside the old self. Up here on the board, you put on the new self, heiress, middle, infinitive. I actually misspoke on this. I thought that was a misprint, but it wasn't. It actually is the infinitive. It just basically ties this verb back to the first verb, which was you lay aside, which is actually really nice in the Greek. Some of you are like, I don't really care, but... I'm just letting you know, I made a mistake. I I was talking, I don't know what happened. I probably got excited. Put on the new self, heiress, middle, infinitive. Corresponds to you lay aside in verse 22. Means to don or put on as clothing. In context, implies the other side of the same coin. That is, you lay aside the old self. That occurs at salvation and forevermore. The heiress infinitive does not indicate person or number presents the action expressed by the verb as a, complete, a completed unit uh, with a beginning and an end, and then, of course, in context, refers back to a previous action of you laying aside. That's the beauty of infinitive. Infinitive requires another verb to sort of piggyback on, and that's you laid aside and you put on. So the two verbs are intrinsically tied together. It's a beautiful thing. What this means in the end is that the laying aside and the putting on are part of one transaction that occurs at salvation. This means that a person is changed. A person is changed at a point in time. They don't pretend being changed. They don't run behind the car for a while. They don't sprout up really quick and then fade away. They are literally changed right here on. They lay aside, they put on. They lay aside, they put on. It's done. This means that a person has changed as a point in time and is never able to undo that change. And I think I'll end here. Why? I, I bet you I, I'd be willing to bet at least 50% of you right now, which makes me really happy, would be able to come up here and say, this is why they will never change. This is why that change can never be undone. See how smart you are. Because God's grace never fails. Because God's grace never 
fails. You didn't change yourself. A religious person tries that, right? And fails. You didn't change yourself. God changed you. That's grace. And if the Word of God says, you laid aside, you put on, and that thing happened at salvation, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. You are a changed person that can never be undone. You're going to clang around back there. You're going to make a lot of noise. But you will follow Jesus. If you're one of His, He lost not one. You will follow Jesus because God's grace never fails. So I think for two years now, at least a year and a half now, what the Spirit's saying from the, from the pulpit has been this subtlety. It's not... <laughs> Let's ask the right question. There's a lot of people who assume salvation, and they're over here contemplating maturity issues. Well, I, don't really, I didn't really put them on. I didn't really take them off. And they take verses out of context, and they say, oh, that, that, that's just Paul talking about like some maturity issue. Uh-uh. He's talking about salvation. If you're changed, you're changed. If you're completely untethered from Jesus Christ, you don't have a problem with maturity. You have a problem with Christ himself. It means you were never tethered to the car. It means you ran behind the car for a little while and then got tired and sat on the sidewalk as the, the car drove away. And Jesus said, I had to tell you, you're not mine. Mine always follow me with supernatural empowerment of my spirit. I change their hearts even. If you can't look in the mirror and say, I have no other option. And I'm not talking about clanging around. I'm talking about as the general purpose of your life. If you can't look in the mirror and say, I have no other option, then it's not about going to church. It's not about, it's not some guilt trip to come see me preach. It's not about going to church. It's not about doing this or that religious thing. It's about having a true love in a relationship for the Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, because he's your husband, you don't leave him. You might cheat on him. You might adulterate on him. But you never leave him. You never divorce him because he won't let you divorce him. Not that you would ever want to. I hope you see what the Spirit's trying to say. He's your husband, and he's magnificent, and he's perfect. And he's went and prepared a place for you. You're his bride, and he's going to come back. And he's going to take you out. It's not overwhelming. This is not the face of an unbeliever. Does that make sense? This is not the heart of an unbeliever. This is what it's like to be a believer. This is what it's like to think about people that don't have that. People that are running behind the car. And people are lying to them. And cheering each other. And patting each other on the back and saying, You're in, man. You're in like Flynn. You got the free ticket to heaven. You're lying to these people. And they're tired and they're fatigued and they're worn out and they're pathetic. And some of them spit on us and they try to cut us and they bite us and they tell us we're whatever. You choose your poison. They spit venom at us. 
And what do we do? We lace up in the morning. We say, let's do it again. Let's go out there. Why? Because I'm tethered to Jesus. And Jesus is out there saying, and lo, I will be with you always. Amen? Bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together, to break the bread that is the very sustenance of our lives, the bread of life, the Word of God. Thank you for empowering us. Thank you for teaching us through your Spirit, Father. Although we're overwhelmed at times, we, we know we don't have any other choices. We are sheep of our great shepherd, your son. We ought to follow him. We want to follow him. We persist. We persevere. We overcome. Thank you, Father, for reminding us of these things and encouraging us along the way. We do just ask for blessings as we travel forth as a congregation out to take on that great commission. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.